My name is Kent, and I'm one of the pastors here. So glad to have you here with us today. The last few weeks, I get up early in the morning, it's still a little bit dark, and I have to figure out if I can go run outside, and I can't always tell if it's raining. A lot of the mornings it has been raining a lot, so I have a little uh, way to figure out if it's raining. By looking into my backyard, I have a little pond, and I can see if it's raining, there's, there's ripples on the pond where the raindrops hit. And so that's been kind of one of my rain gauges. Uh, this morning I looked out and uh, the weather report from the pond was leafy. <laughs> We've been thinking about how we are like ripples in the world, how we go out to make transformation, how God begins a work in us, and as that work renews us and shapes us and forms us as followers of Christ, then we go out and we bring that to the world and that, begin, that begins a transformation. And we've been looking at vocabulary words, different core ideas that help us kind of figure out what that might look like, that transformation. And uh, we're going to continue that today. And you've already heard the word, it's truth. And we're going to start by looking at Scripture to see what it says about this. And we're going to use a little passage in Romans chapter 1. So if you'd be willing to open up your Bible to Romans 1 and read along, that'd be great. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's one in the chair. You can always open up your phone or your, your iPad or whatever you've got to read Scripture with. Romans chapter 1. We're in the New Testament right after the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Romans chapter 1. I'm going to be reading Romans 1, starting with verse 20. But before I read it, I want you to know I'm praying for you, and I'd like to know I'm being prayed for. So I offer you this prayer. The Lord be with you. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they were fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. This is God's Word and it's true and we can rely on it. How do you know if you're hearing the truth? This question seems to come up a lot more frequently and with greater urgency since we've started hearing this phrase, fake news. Have you heard that phrase anywhere? We try to figure out what is true news and what is not true. And I actually came across an image this week that is now my new favorite picture of fake news. I wish every time I heard a fake news report it had on glasses and a mustache. That would help me a lot. Do you think that you can tell the difference between fake news and true news? Most of the time? 
There's been some interesting surveys done on this, and one recent survey showed that 70% of us thought that we could always identify the fake news from the real news. That's what we thought, and then the survey went on to test us, and it found out that we could get it right about half the time. That oftentimes the news that comes streaming at us through the internet and through cable news and through whatever device we're using to get our news, the fake stories and the real stories are often confusing, and it's difficult to tell the difference between what is fake and what is true. Uh, How important do you think it is that we actually could get to the truth when we're hearing these things? Well, of course, that maybe matters on what you're focusing on. It's probably a lot less important to know fake from true if you're trying to discern whether or not Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are really expecting or not. It's probably more important if, for example, you happen to be in Hawaii last February when there was an alert that there was a ballistic missile attack imminent. You would want to know if that was fake or not fake. Is it important for us to know the truth? Here's what I want to do in the next few moments. In fact, after I dug into this, I discovered the same thing Mel discovered, that truth is a huge subject. We only have a little bit of time. And so for the next few minutes, I want to focus us in three ways. First of all, I want to make a case for truth. Second, I want to mention four great truths that we believe. And then I want to give you an example of how these truths shape us how they make a difference in our lives. Okay, so first, a case for truth. Followers of Jesus throughout history have maintained that there is truth. Truth exists. We can know truth. And we have maintained that God's Word, the Bible, is truth. All followers of Jesus throughout all of history have said, these words are true. And if we want to know what truth is, we turn here. These words are inspired by God, and they give us everything that we need to know about God and who God is, about what God is like, about who we are, about how we've been made, about what our identity is in Christ, about God's plan for us and for this world, and how God's plan is going to be carried out. This book tells us everything we need to know about the truth of God and how we can live in this world following those truths. This is important. There's been no time in history when followers of Jesus have turned to other places. We have tried. We try to look at, you know, our own kind of emotional response to things. We look at our own prejudice, our own feelings. Sometimes we go inward to our own thoughts and our own ideas. All of these things are prone to lead us into error. There's one place we can go to find truth, ultimate truth, that can be depended on, that can be relied upon, it's in this book right here. Truth about God and His desire to transform us and transform the world, to rescue us from sin, to conquer death, to shine light into darkness, to fix everything that's broken in the world, to set right everything that needs to be set right, to bring His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Everything we need to know about these things is in this book, and it is true. And we can rely on it. 
What is the greatest enemy of this truth? Ever think about that? The greatest enemy of this truth. I'm going to suggest that it's the enemy of God. The enemy of our souls. We call him Satan. We call him the devil. We call him Lucifer. Listen to how the Bible talks about this enemy. This is from John 8. The devil was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The enemy of truth is the father of lies, and he is hell-bent on destroying everything good that God wants to accomplish. He is hell-bent on upending all of God's purposes, of destroying all of God's truths. That's his goal, his aim, his purpose, his reason for existing is to undo the good that God wants to do. And his favorite weapon from the very beginning has been lies. Lies, lies, lies. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates a paradise. And then he enjoys this paradise in sweet intimacy, walking through the garden with Adam and Eve. They have access, as they walk through the garden with God, to unlimited abundance. They have access to beauty and goodness. They have everything they ever hoped for and imagined. They only have one boundary. There is one tree that is off limits. Everything else is at their disposal. And this, in sweet companionship with God. And here is what the father of lies does to undermine this. In Genesis chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What's he doing? First time we meet him, what's he doing? Twisting, distorting, changing the truth. Did God really say that? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say... You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. This is so fascinating to me. The father of lies has just introduced untruth, and already it's starting to infect and distort the way Eve reports what God did. God never said anything about don't touch that fruit. He just said don't eat it. The serpent continues, You will not certainly die. A little bit bolder, now directly contradicting what God has said. The father of lies. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the fruit of the tree and that it was good for food and pleasing to the eyes and also desirable for gaining wisdom... She took some 
and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, and he ate it. What led them to eat the fruit? Lies. They ate the fruit because they did not believe God. They did not trust God's word. They did not stand pat on the truth that God had given to them. Instead, they believed lies. The father of lies distorted and twisted and recast the truth so Adam and Eve don't trust. And this is really what the father of lies does best. He actually raises questions about God himself. He wants us to doubt God. He wants us to not believe the truth that God tells us. Did God really say that? Does God really care? Does God really want his best for you? Does God really know better than you do? Truth matters because God is truth. And truth and trust can't be separated. Truth is essential because untruth leads to trouble. This from Romans 1 again. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and His divine nature, they've been clearly seen to everyone. So we are without excuse. Although we claim to be wise, we became fools because we exchanged this truth for a lie. This is the fundamental reason why truth matters. Because we understand that God is truth. And truth can't be separated from trust. And whenever we stop believing the truth and stop trusting, that leads to trouble. So that's my case for truth. Now, four essential truths I said I would share. Truths about God. Now, these are not abstract realities or ideas that we just keep putting in our heads, facts to add to our knowledge. But these are concrete realities that actually shape us. They form us. These truths shape our thoughts and our behaviors. These truths can't be separated from transformation, from their transformative power. These are truths that change lives. Here's four great truths. God is good. God is glorious. God is great. And God is gracious. Four key truths. Turn to any part of the Bible, Old or New Testament, and you could find passages that help explain or illustrate God's greatness and God's goodness and God's gloriousness and God's graciousness. You could almost open to almost any page and you'd find something there about these four truths. I'm going to turn to one place, actually one person, to try to highlight all four of these truths about God. And the person I want to turn to is Jesus. And there's a reason for this, actually two reasons. First, from Hebrews 1.3, it says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. Isn't that a great truth? If we want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. And then the second reason is from John 14.6, because Jesus himself says, I am truth. So if I want to know truth, I'm going to look at Jesus. 
If we look at Jesus, do we see God's greatness? Jesus walked on water, turned water into wine, calmed the storm with a word, fed 5,000 people with a few bits of bread and fish, healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, raised the dead to life. Is God great? Do we see that in Jesus? This is truth. If we, le- if we look at Jesus, do we see God's gloriousness? Jesus, born of a virgin, resisting all evil and temptation, conquering sin and death, raised from the dead, incarnation, perfection, resurrection. This is glorious stuff. John 1 says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God is glorious. This is truth. If we look at Jesus, do we see God's goodness? Jesus, who welcomed children, cared for widows, rescued the outcast, defended the downtrodden, protected the abused, fought for justice, proclaimed good news, to the poor. God is good. This is true. If we look at Jesus, do we see God's graciousness? Jesus, who prayed for his enemies, who forgave those who were condemned by everyone else, who refused to strike back even when he was struck down who laid down his life as a sacrifice to show mercy to those who do not deserve mercy. God is gracious, and this is true. Leah shared some beautiful and and powerful thoughts last week about worship, how using our voices in worship changes things. And I was inspired because she said, you don't even have to be able to sing well. You just have to be able to make a noise. And this can change things. If you haven't had a chance to hear her sermon from last week, I invite you to go to the website, go to the app, listen. It was awesome. The transforming power of worship. Leah reminded us that the Psalms are really a songbook that the people of God used throughout history to sing back to God. And she suggested that if we couldn't figure out words to use when we were worshiping, we could use the words from the Psalms. They're great words. It's the kind of worship that is speaking truth to lies is what it is. Do you know what God's people love to sing about? They love to sing about God's greatness and God's goodness and God's graciousness, and God's gloriousness. That's what they love to sing about. I gave you some suggestions, some examples in the outline you could look up. I'm going to share one more. Psalm 34. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. 
When I hear these words from Psalm 34, it reminds me of the third part of my sermon, which was going to be giving you some examples of how this makes a difference, of how we can be transformed by truth, how it can shape us the way that we live. The psalmist in Psalm 34 says, if you really believe that God is good, it's not just up here in your head, it's in your heart. It's not just an abstract idea. It's concrete. It's something that you taste and see. If you really believe the truth that God is good, you take refuge in Him. You find shelter in Him. Even when you are afraid, you turn to Him and find comfort. We rejoice when we have affliction. We glorify Him and praise Him at all times because our fear does not change the truth that God is good and God is great and He is glorious and He is gracious. When I know these truths, then I trust Him. Here's something I've often experienced, though, related to truth and trust, and that is that it gets harder to trust when you're in the wilderness. Anybody else ever have that experience? When you're in a hard place. Yeah, when life is good, we can sing God's praises. Yeah, life is great. God is good. God is great. God is glorious. The wilderness represents a really different place, a place of hardship, a place of trouble, a place of doubt, a place of fear. We get lost while wandering through the wilderness. We can't find our way. We get confused. The father of lies starts talking in our ear. Does God really still care for you in the middle of this hardship? Can you really keep trusting God even in this dark place, in this wilderness? The wilderness can be very threatening, a very difficult place to trust God. I want to share uh, one more story from Scripture about this. Listen to this story from Exodus chapter 16. It's a passage about God's people being in the wilderness. And while I'm reading this, I want you to think about the connection between truth and trust. Okay? Exodus chapter 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam, and they came to the wilderness, which is between Elam and Sinai. They were there on the 15th day of the second month after they have come up out of slavery in Egypt. In the wilderness, the whole community grumbled. The Israelites said, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt... There we sat around pots of meat and we ate all the food that we wanted. But you have brought us out into this wilderness to starve the entire assembly. Is this what happens when we're in the wilderness? You start to doubt? I do. Does God really care in this place? So the Lord came to Moses and spoke to him. And I'm really curious as I'm reading through this passage and I'm starting to think about, what do you think God is going to say to these people? They, he has rescued them up out of slavery because he heard their cry. He's delivered them 
in mighty and miraculous ways through the Red Seas. He's delivered them. He's provided for their every need. I mean, they've just experienced the ten plagues that God brought down upon the Egyptians. They've experienced all this wonderful, marvelous, uh, transforming power of God to rescue them out of Egypt. And now they're complaining, murmuring and grumbling. And God's about to speak. What do you expect God to say? Well, if I'm God, I'm going to say, well, you people... The Lord said to Moses, Exodus 16, verse 4, This is what I will do. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. God is good and great and glorious and gracious to his people. They're murmuring and complaining, and God says, Here's what I'll do for you. I'm going to give you bread Every day. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Then will they trust me? If I put some bread out there every day for them, will they trust me? Then I got a picture of something. You know what this is? This is manna. This is the bread that God rained down from heaven. This is what it looks like. It actually is a thing that um, forms in the desert sometimes in small quantities. But in order to get enough manna to sustain you, you have to pick a whole bunch of it. You have to scoop it. It comes off in little flaky bunches, and you have to scoop it up and get a basket. It's very uh, enriching, very nutritious, very tasty, very sweet, like honey. Um, but you have to really work at it to get a lot of it, enough to sustain all these people. So every day, they had to go out day by day, and they had to trust God to provide more bread for that day and then gather it. Isn't this something God would do, great and glorious? So every day as I'm picking up these little pieces of manna for myself to sustain me, I'm reminded, God said, I will bring bread from heaven for you every day. You'd think that that would create people who were just really able to trust God. But we know the story, right? Even in this situation, many of them failed to trust God. I think this is the power of the lie and the power of the enemy of the truth, the father of lies, who's in their ears whispering. You know, I gave him special instructions. He says, only take enough each day. Trust me, because tomorrow there'll be some more. And, of course, some of the people gathered up a whole bunch. They, got, they just kept going. They had a whole bunch. And the next morning, what'd they find? In their pot was a bunch of moldy, wormy, gross manna. They didn't trust God. And then God says to them, if you keep reading in Exodus 16, he says, but on the sixth day, before the Sabbath, I want you to get two days' worth because I don't want you to go get manna on the Sabbath because there won't be any. So what do some of the people do? They go out there on, the Sabbath, on Saturday and they get one day's worth. And the next day they get up with their pots, they go out to get more manna. There's nothing. The father of lies is, do you really think you can trust God? Do you really think God wants to bless you? Do you really think God is good at keeping his word? Do you really think God wants what's best for his people? In the wilderness, the people of God were forced to recognize every day again that God is good and God is great. And God is glorious, and God is gracious. 
It probably doesn't look like anything so remarkable when you look at it. But I really think it's quite a fine thing when we can come to the place in our lives where we recognize every day I have to trust God's word again. Every day I have to trust God again for today. This is the power of truth. And I know that many of us wrestle with this in different ways. We wrestle with different challenges. I, I, I'll give an example from my own life. I wrestle with needing to be in control. I think they have a word for that, control freak. But I know I'm not alone because a bunch of you are control freaks also. <laughs> so we struggle with saying, can we actually trust God to do what he's going to say or do we have to keep our hands on it? Do we have to, you know, grab the steering wheel, grab the reins, grab the bull by the horns, grab something so that we can keep control because I don't know if I can trust God to stay in control, to keep doing what he promised to do. I know that's a challenge for me, for many of us. I watched something really amazing over the past several years with someone who learned a thing or two about trusting in the truths of God's promises and surrendering. You know, when we're in the wilderness, it feels like the wrong time to surrender. It feels like we need to take action. We need to get control. But God calls us to surrender, keep trusting, trust that he's good, trust that he's great, that he's glorious, that he's gracious. Keep trusting. Some of you know our good friends, Karen and Ken Bronkhorst. And I watched them enter into a wilderness the last few years as Ken's health declined and faced one challenge after another. And I can't tell you how many times I had a conversation with Ken or Karen or both of them, and they would say to me, it's in God's hands. And I'll confess to you, I often thought in my head, yeah, right, you're saying that, but... What does that look like day after day after day when you have to trust him again? And I saw over the last several years two people who really learned how to trust, who were able to keep surrendering over and over again as things continued to worsen in their wilderness and say it's still in God's hands. And we saw it right down to the last few weeks. A couple of times, Karen added, it's in God's hands and it still feels crappy, but I still trust him. It's moving for me to see someone who has that much faith in God's goodness and God's greatness and God's glorious and God's graciousness in the middle of stuff, hard stuff, And many of you know that we held Ken's funeral right here on Friday. And I don't remember a funeral that was a greater celebration of God's goodness and God's greatness and God's graciousness and God's gloriousness than what we did here Friday morning. It was amazing. If if we're allowed to say it was a great funeral... It was a great funeral. This kind of trust comes when we get up every morning and we say, I'm going to trust in the truths about God again 
today. I'm going to trust that no matter what happens to me, God is good and God is great and God is glorious and God is gracious. And that truth transforms us and I think it could transform the entire corridor. Lord God, we come before you today and we give you thanks because we know that you are a good God and that every good and perfect gift comes from your hand. Thank you for the gift of your word and the truth that we hear in this word. Thank you for meeting us here this morning. I pray, God, that you will continue the good work that you've started in us until one day it's completed and we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.